We're so glad you could join us for the mornings at YCBC today. We want to thank you for being a part of our online family and we hope that this message encourages you, blesses you and helps you grow in your walk with him. So let's get into the word. So Heavenly Father, we pray for our time in your word this morning, Lord. We pray that you would quicken it to our hearts. We, we pray that those of us who have ears to hear, uh, and I think that's all of us, Lord, those of us who have ears to hear would truly hear your word this morning. That we wouldn't just check out, check off, be present physically but absent spiritually and emotionally and mentally, Lord. We pray that you would, by your spirit, cause us to lean into your word this morning and that it would bear fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, so we're starting a new series this morning uh, and, and we've, we've had a, a time of unpacking vision and then unpacking our, 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 our um, each one reach one strategy and so I encourage you to just to take that phrase to remind you of what we're doing in that space. Uh, but now we're jumping into uh, sticking with a section of God's Word for a while. And so I'm excited just to, to dig into the Word and, and to be nourished by it together. Uh, and so this series is called Dear Church. Um, and so there are many opinions, many people that might say, well, dear church, I think you should. I think you must. There's many people who want to speak into the life of the church. Uh, some of those are helpful and some of them are not. But what would Jesus say to the church? Uh, lots of those voices are helpful and we can listen to lots of helpful people, but I, I want to encourage us this morning to dig in and over the next seven weeks to dig into thinking about what would Jesus himself say to the church? And fortunately in Revelations chapter 2 and 3, we have seven letters from Jesus to seven churches. Uh, those seven churches were all uh, in what's today modern Turkey at the time, what was the Asian province of the Roman Empire. Uh, but they're not just letters to them, they're, they're letters intended for the whole church. They're letters of affirmation, they're letters of warning, they're letters of rebuke, they're letters of encouragement and they're letters of promise. They reveal to us what's important to Jesus when it comes to his church. And so these letters were written, and, and sometimes, I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes you kind of just take, especially the New Testament, and think, oh, well, this, it was all in the first five minutes after Jesus' death and resurrection. But, but Revelation, this letter, this uh, prophecy, uh, this apocalyptic piece of literature, uh, it was written probably towards the end of the first century. As John was, was very elderly and he was the, the youngest of the disciples and so this is at the end of his life and so many of the believers in the church at this time when this was written, they weren't around when Jesus was around on earth. They are second generation believers, most of them, some of them third generation believers and I don't mean necessarily that, you know, the children of Christian parents, I mean that, that it had been passed on from one generation to the next and so this is the church Years after Jesus' ministry, with Jesus revealing himself and revealing what's important to the church. Now, if you've spent a moment in the book of Revelation, uh, you would be aware that there's lots of very rich imagery in this book. Uh, and even though the, the section we're looking at now is probably the, the most straightforward, there's still lots of deep, rich imagery that, that uh, is valuable and important. Uh, and we could also get lost in that. You know, there's, there's phrases in this uh, piece of scripture that we could spend weeks unpacking. 
But what I want our focus to be through this series is, is to grab for us, for ourselves, a sense of what is Jesus saying to his church? What is Jesus saying to his church here in Yas? Now, to get there, we're going to think about, well, what, what did he say to Ephesus? What did he say to Smyrna? And those, those churches that this was originally written to. But, but we want to grab from that, not an academic understanding of what Jesus said to churches that existed thousands of years ago. But what is Jesus saying now to his church here today? What's he saying to you and I? Because these are the words of Jesus. These letters, these seven letters are the words of Jesus. And so before we jump into the first letter this morning, I I just want to grab a little bit of context from what precedes what Alex read for us. Uh, If if you've got Revelation 2 open in front of you, I'm going to read from verse 9. So here it says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And so this letter was written by John, the human author, the the conduit by, by whom this letter comes to the church is the apostle John. He who described himself in his gospel as the one who Jesus loved. And so John is late in life. And he's on, in exile on the island of Patmos, which is this little bit of rock out in the Aegean Sea, about 60 kilometers from Ephesus, where John spent much of his ministry. And he said he was there because of the words of Jesus, because of the good news, because of the gospel, the word of God. And, and so that means he was exiled because he was preaching about Jesus, because of his role as a leader in the church. We don't have it in scripture, but, but historical tradition suggests that this is after he's already survived their attempt to martyr him. And so if John wrote this, then how are these the words of Jesus to the church? Well, let's read on in verse 10. And I'm going to read a, a good chunk here now. It says, On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. To Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned around, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. And so, so to the early church who would have been familiar with the Old Testament and to, to hopefully at least some of us that are familiar with the Old Testament, we can't say son of man without thinking about Daniel 7. And if, if you're not thinking about Daniel 7 right now, I encourage you to go home afterwards and read Daniel 7 because this is the, the scripture that talks about one like a son of man who comes with all authority. And all power. And this is where Jesus gets his descriptor of himself, the Son of Man. He's not just saying, I'm human. He's saying, I am that Son of Man. And so the one that, J- that John sees is Jesus in all authority, in all power. The hair on his head was white like wool, he goes on to say. As white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. This is imagery of holiness, of purity. His feet were like bronze glowing in the furnace and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. This language is the language that's used of Almighty God, of Yahweh, throughout the Old Testament. 
In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. That's representing his voice, his word, and the power of it. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And so when John turned around to see who it was saying, write these letters to the churches, he turned around and he encountered uh, the theological term is theophany. Uh, that's a, an encounter with the presence of God. Seeing God manifest in front of him in the person of Jesus. And so John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Seems like a reasonable response. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Again, language of Almighty God, of Yahweh. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. And so in case we were mistaken or weren't quite sure yet, John, uh, Jesus makes it clear to John who he is. This is Jesus. Still in body, but not in frail human body, in glorious, resurrected body. And so he says again to John, Write therefore what you have seen, and what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and on the seven golden lampstands, is this. The seven stars are the angels or messengers of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so Jesus is writing to his church, but in this imagery, he's standing amongst the church. And so Jesus isn't far off as Christy led this morning. If you weren't here at 10, you missed a great uh, welcome from Christy and, and, and prayer. But, but as Jesus, as he said, the God is not far off. He's here amongst us. He walks amongst the church and, and he holds the stars, the, the angels or the messengers of the church in his right hand. And, and in ancient imagery, in biblical imagery, the right hand is, is representative of authority. And so it's saying he has authority over the church. And so these are the words of the glorious risen Lord Jesus to his church. And so we should heed them. We should give them that place in our mind as we come to think about uh, this next seven weeks. To be honest, whenever we think about Scripture, we should think of it in this way. Uh, but, but just to be reminded in, in these seven letters, this isn't like the Word of God abstractly through some other means. This is Jesus' direct word to the church. And so Jesus begins, if we're back up to where we left off with Alex's reading this morning in John chapter, not John, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. Jesus says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, and to remind us of what I've just said. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks amongst the seven golden light lampstands. You can put that first one up now. David, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. And so Jesus begins his letter to the church in Ephesus with an affirmation. 
with a commendation of, of what they're doing well in. And he says, I know your deeds. Now, our response to, to that thought that I know your deeds might vary depending on what we feel about our deeds. But, but I want to encourage you this, this morning. I feel like there's someone this morning that, that needs to know that Jesus knows your deeds. Not in a, oh, he's watching you when you're sinning sense. We can extrapolate that out for ourselves, but, but there's someone who's been feeling, oh, just what's the point? What's the point? And, and, and I want you to know that Jesus knows your deeds. What we do sometimes might seem like it goes unnoticed, but it's not unnoticed by him. Jesus knows your deeds. He talks about hard work and perseverance. And, and so in this context, hard work is, is service, is ministry, is doing God's work, is serving others. It's, it's hard work. It's not just, it includes, I think, showing up and doing a good job at your job. That's part of what we're called to as believers. But, but Jesus calls us to hard work and he affirms it. Jesus values this. He, he values perseverance, that, that there's been obstacles, that there's been things to overcome but the church hasn't grown weary. It's kept growing through hardship. And he says also in this affirmation that, that you do not tolerate wicked people. That they, they don't tolerate false apostles. And so this isn't people outside of the church or, or sinners like the, like the Pharisees would come to Jesus and say... You know, why, 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 are you, why are you tolerating these sinners in your presence? This is, this is not those people. Because we can see in, in Jesus that, that those were the people that he gravitated towards and that gravitated towards him. Now, this is people uh, that we, we put those two things together, the false apostles and the wicked people. It's the, the one group of people that Jesus is talking about here. And he says to the church of Ephesus, you're doing well because you don't tolerate that. You, you've tested those who claim to be apostles, and apostle is a word that we use to speak of John and, and, and Paul and Peter and, and those early leaders of the church, but it's also a word that, that kind of encompasses this sense of speaking for God. And so Jesus is saying, you've tested those that claim to speak for God but, but aren't actually, and you've found them false and so you don't tolerate that. These are those that present a false gospel that speak false prophecy. And so some translations say here, you hate wicked people. Uh, the, the original Greek is better translated, tolerated. And it means that they're not putting up with this false teaching. It means that they haven't been led astray by, by every kind of preacher that comes in and feels like they've got something to say. If we jump down a little bit in verse 5, he talks about, and you also hate the Nicolaitans. And so this is that same idea. He says you hate them and you hate their practices. And there's only two places in all of ancient literature that we see this word show up and they're both in these letters to the churches and we actually know pretty much nothing about them. Lots of people have made guesses, but, but in context here we just know that they're people who, who teach false doctrine and who practice false kind of behaviour. The one thing we do know about them actually is that they're followers of a man named Nicholas. Um, and so that is a little bit ironic for us this morning and uh, perhaps a little bit awkward that if the one thing we know about these people is that they follow someone named Nicholas. So follow Jesus, not Nicholas. 
And so Jesus commends the church for their hard work, for their perseverance and for their intolerance for false teaching, that they test it. It's like counterfeit money. It's a bit like uh, imitations of famous artworks. Sometimes they might look like the real thing, but they're actually of no value. Counterfeit money might, might look almost like it's the real deal, like it's, like it's a you know, beautiful, crisp $100 note, but, but it's actually worthless. And so the danger is that the church gets led astray and, and clings to a worthless gospel instead of the good gospel. And so what's the takeaway for us from, from Jesus' affirmation to the church at Ephesus? Well, so Jesus wants his church to work hard. Jesus is not looking for a lazy church. He wants them to work hard in the ministry of the gospel, in the service of one another, in, in their efforts to reach the community outside the church with the name of Jesus. What we take away is that Jesus affirms our perseverance. He, he affirms when we keep going when things are hard. And Jesus wants us to test the voices that we listen to. There are so many false prophets, apostles and teachers today. You know, in the days of Ephesus, you kind of had to wait till they would come to town and, you know, show up at church and, and, and say, hey, I've got something to say from God for you and then you'd have to test them. But today we're blessed. We can find false prophets just by, you know, a quick Google search. You know, if you Google false prophet, you'll find lots of interesting stuff, but that's not what I'm talking about. Uh, we have this pipeline, so many devices that can streamline false teaching directly to our eyeballs and our ears and if we're not careful to our soul. And so Jesus would have us test what we're listening to and what we allow to shape our faith. And so I really believe that today the, the local church, the gathering of believers, the trusted community of fellowship is more important, not less important than ever. This is not talking about you have to be really crit critical and critique your preacher every Sunday. This is about be careful who you're listening to. Be careful what you're downloading into your soul. Test it alongside scripture. Test it in relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ in community. Say, well, what, what do you think about this brother? What do you think about this sister? How does this sit with you? And so Jesus affirms the church at Ephesus for these things. He says, tell the angel, the messenger of the church of Ephesus, tell Ephesus you're doing well in these places. And so the question for us really, the takeaway is to think, would Jesus give us this affirmation? Would Jesus say this of our church? Would Jesus say this as me? Would he, would he say it of you? Would he affirm your hard work? Would he affirm your perseverance? Have you tested what you're filling yourself with? Would Jesus give you this affirmation? I know your deeds, said Jesus. They're not hidden from him. And so Jesus gives an affirmation, which, which most of these letters to each of the churches have an affirmation. 
And most of them have a warning or a rebuke. And so it's a good lesson just to step aside from what Jesus is saying to us. If you're going to bring rebuke, it's also good to be looking for what's good. <laughs> to encourage and rebuke. Not just to do the, you're kind of good at something and you suck. Just but to, to think about a balanced perspective. But Jesus also has rebuke for the church at Ephesus. And before we jump into that, I just want to flip over to one of the other letters because it's true of all of these letters to Revelation 3.19 just to, to put our hearts in the right place when it comes to Jesus giving rebuke. In, in, in Revelation 3.19, in the, the letter to the church in Laodicea, Jesus says this, Those whom I love are rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. And so if there's rebuke from Jesus whether it's this morning through, through the letter to Ephesus to us, whether it comes by the Spirit, whether, whether it comes through Scripture, whether it comes through a brother and sister, we need to test that because we're not all perfect. Sometimes we just dump our garbage on one another because we're human. But, but if there's genuine rebuke that once we've kind of examined it, we believe it's from God, it's only there because He loves you. It's only there because He loves me, correction, discipline, rebuke come from Jesus because he loves us. He loves us just as we are. But he loves us too much to leave us broken and dysfunctional. And so there's rebuke from Jesus. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, continuing with this letter from Ephesus, to Ephesus, Jesus says, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If not, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. And so Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, you've forsaken the love that you had at first. Or some translations would say you've forsaken your first love. It's this sense of, of that new, fresh Love, if we're thinking in romantic relationships, we might think of it as that gooey, like there couldn't possibly be anything wrong with that person's stage. But the thing about Jesus is that should last forever because there isn't possibly anything wrong with him. There's no faults to find like there is. There's none in Christy, of course, but like there has been for her to find in me. They've let go of agape love. Agape is the Greek word here, which is that that word that means sacrificial, other-focused, other-seeking love. They've let go of it. This is uh, love for Jesus above all else. And from that love for Jesus above all else, love for one another. And some of the commentators on this passage talk about, well, is he talking about the the first love for Jesus or the love they had for one another first? But, But others just say, yes. And I agree with that. Yes, he's talking about both. This is uh, the, the greatest commandment, Jesus says, is to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. This is how Jesus said that we would know that we're his disciples, meaning that people would know that we're lovers of him by the way that we love one another. The Apostle Paul says if we don't have love, then we're just a clanging gong. <coughs> Pardon me. And so these two things go hand in hand together. Our our first love for Jesus and our love for one another in the church. Jesus says, I hold this against you. You've forsaken that. 
And the warning here seems super harsh. If you don't repent and turn around, despite all of the affirmation he's just given them, I'll remove your lampstand from its place. Now, Ephesus was kind of the key city in this area. It was a a harbour city. Fun fact, that's got nothing to do with it this morning. It's now six miles or however many kilometres that is from the coast because the river silted up. But it was a harbour city. It was kind of the the key trading port. It was a peak pinnacle of a city. It was a centre for the region in the church. But Jesus is saying, if you don't turn around, I'll remove your lampstand, which seems super harsh until we realise that if we don't love God above all else, if we don't love Jesus above all else, if if we're not manifesting that in our love for one another let go at the back of my head we're not manifesting that love for one another then we cease to really be the church these headset microphones just make it much less conspicuous and things like that and make sure that it's not a distraction and things if we're not loving Jesus above all else if we're not loving one another then we're not really the church anymore without love for one another we cease to be his disciples and so it might seem super harsh that Jesus said, well, I'll remove your lampstand, but it's really just removing a lampstand that's already gone out. The flame's already gone. It's interesting, you know, maybe making too much of it, but he doesn't say, I'll remove your lamp. He says, I'll remove your lampstand. It's, it's an empty, flameless lamp if we're not loving Jesus above all else and loving one another as ourselves. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I've had a few hobbies, a few interests over my lifetime. Uh, and not all of them have stayed with the same enthusiasm. Uh, I, I still say that I do, but, but one of my loves has been mountain biking and cycling. Uh, and and um, I used to spend a lot of time doing that. I used to, to ride a lot. I used to do uh, reasonably regularly, once or twice a year, a mountain bike marathon, which is like 100 Ks. Um, and I see the thing is, I still say I love mountain biking, I love cycling, but apart from like a little ride around the caravan park after Easter, I've not actually ridden a bike for probably well over a year. And so you've probably had hobbies like that where, where you think, yeah, I just love that, but actually when you think about it, your enthusiasm for it has just kind of faded off, sometimes to nothing. Sometimes we're honest, we go, actually, maybe I don't like that anymore. And so the same thing can happen with our love for Jesus, but it shouldn't. We, we can be in that place where we say, yeah, I still love Jesus, yeah, I still love Jesus. He, he's the most important thing to me, but we haven't actually done anything for some time that manifests the authenticity of that love. And, and so Jesus says, consider how far you have fallen. Jesus invites the church to consider how far they have fallen from the love that they had at first. He's asking for them to, to reflect, to think, to assess themselves, to pause, to think about it. And I, and I want to encourage you to do that this morning. 
Yeah, maybe you're in the midst of that first love. I, I don't want to label everybody this morning with that brush, but maybe you're in the midst of that. But I sense for many of us, including myself, when we think about that, we might say, yeah, I'm loving Jesus hardcore. But actually, when we think about it, we've probably faded off in our enthusiasm a little bit. There might be reasons we can say, yeah, COVID, I've just fell out of the habit of church and uh, you know, I, I'm super busy, I've had a new baby. Or, or There might be things around that and not to condemn anyone for those things. There might be things we can point back to. <clears throat> but that's not what Jesus is inviting us to consider. He's inviting us to consider how far we have fallen from our first love. You know, when I think about cycling... I might say, yeah, I still love it. I still love mountain biking. But when I do a bit of a self-assessment about that, well, I've had a half-built mountain bike in my shed for quite some time now and it hasn't got fully put together and my road bike hasn't, you know, it's quite dusty. Uh, the thing that doesn't lie is the scales. You know, I used to ride 100 kilometres on a mountain bike, now I am 120 kilograms. And, and the things kind of don't mesh together too well. The scales don't lie. And so if we're to put our love on a scale, not that Jesus loves us less, I'm, our faith isn't about a scale, but Jesus is inviting us to consider this morning. If we were to put our love for him and for others on a scale, where would we be? The action he calls for is this. He goes on and says, repent and do the things that you did at first. Repent just means to turn around. You know, we've grabbed onto this idea sometimes in the church that repent means grovel before him or you know, have this um, period of depression about how, long, how far you've fallen from, from grace. Or Repent just means to turn around, to, to change directions, to turn from, in the words of the Apostle Paul, been driven by the flesh to been driven by the Spirit, to turn from sin to Jesus, to, to turn around. And so Jesus says, repent and do the things you did at first. Turn away from fading enthusiasm. And I love here that Jesus is very clear that love is an action. He says, do the things. And so if we think about my cycling, I might say I love it, but I'm, I'm not doing the things. I'm not actually riding the bike. Uh, I'm not actually putting the bike together so that I can ride it. I, I'm not actually maintaining my fitness so that I can, can ride it. Um, pray for me. I'm hoping to get back there, but, but I'm hoping to do the things I did at first. Amen? Um, but love is manifest in action. So we might say, yes, I, I love Jesus so much, but I'm too busy to pray, to read his word, to, to come and gather for worship. I'm, I'm too tired, I'm too, too whatever. We might say, yeah, I love Jesus, but we're not doing the things. It's not that we do things to earn his love, we do the things to manifest our love. Love does. Love for Jesus is displayed in what we do. Love for one another is displayed in what we do. And so what's the takeaway for us? 
Well, just like the church in Ephesus, it's, it's pretty straightforward from Jesus. It's to repent, to return to our first love, the love that we had at first. It's to do the things that we did at first. And so what are those things? What are the things that we did at first? Think about cycling. Well, it was, I used to wake up pretty early often and go for bike rides, or I used to go for bike rides at night. I, I had this light that I could put on my bike that I could ride in the middle of winter in the darkness, you know, minus five degrees, and I was like rugged up and had this light on my bike, and I was riding out there in the dark because I loved it so much. Now I'm like, ugh. Maybe in the middle of the day when it's nice and warm, like after a few stretches and so the things that I did at first seem challenging to me now. What, what about our faith? What about our love in Jesus? What are, what are the things that we might have done at first when we fell, first fell in love with Jesus? The, the book of Acts gives us a, a good picture of what the church did at first. And you know, these first couple readings are not speaking about the church at Ephesus, but I think it's a good picture of, of the church's first love on display and so in Acts chapter 2 verse 42 and 47 Luke records for us how the the early church that first love was manifest for them it says in verse 42 of Acts 2 they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and so for us if you're holding a bible if you're not it can be on your phone but but this this is the apostles teaching Right here in my hand is the apostles' teaching. And so the early church devoted themselves to that. And to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many signs and wonders performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts. Every day. So, you feel a little bit like, oh, Pastor Nick's saying I should show up at church on Sundays. At least I'm not saying every day. <laughs> but this, is, this is what first love looks like. Of course, these weren't all church services. This was just the believers wanting to be together. Every day they continued to meet together in their temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. No one actually had to tell them to show up. No one had to tell them that it was important because their love for Jesus made them just want to be there with the other people that loved Jesus. Praising God and enjoying the favour of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. We get another picture that Luke records for us at the end of Acts chapter 4. Verse 32 to 35. It says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. And this more tells us more so of their love for one another, manifesting out of their love for Jesus. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they have with great power, the apostles continue to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy persons among them. 
From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from their sales and put it in the apostles' feet and distributed it to anyone who had need. And so the early church had no one amongst them that had need. If we look at Ephesus itself, we get a picture of that in Acts chapter 19. Now, Ephesus is one of the places that the Apostle Paul went to. They'd already heard about Jesus, but they hadn't received the Holy Spirit. And so, through Paul's ministry, they received the Holy Spirit. Um, And so, in verse 19, this is just one picture of the first love that the Ephesian church had. Uh, Sorry, chapter 19, verse 18 says that many of those believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. That's repentance. No one had to tell them, you're a horrible person and you need to turn from your sin. They encountered the Holy Spirit, they saw the power of God, they heard the word of God preached and they openly repented. A number who had practiced sorcery bought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they had calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. Um, and so that is 50,000 days wages worth. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. And so they had a good old-fashioned book burning. But it wasn't that they burnt, you know, it wasn't kind of what we might imagine of a book burning where they hunted down all of these evil books that other people owned and pulled them out of the library and burned them. No, this was part of their repentance. They encountered Jesus and they loved him so much that there was no room in their life for anything else but him. And even though they could have sold these sorcery books and, and made quite a bit of money, many of them probably spent years saving for them. They became worthless to them for the love of Jesus. And so now Jesus is speaking to the church and saying, repent and do the things that you did at first. Redevote yourself to the apostles' teaching. Redevote yourself to the gathering with the church. Redevote yourself to prayer. Redevote yourself to love for one another. That that it could be said of your church community in Ephesus and here in Yass that there's no one amongst them that's in need because they take care of one another. Jesus is saying, Repent and do those things that you did at first. And he ends with an encouragement. You can come up, worship team. I'll find Revelation 2 again. Jesus ends each of these letters with with an encouragement and a promise. And he ends his letter to the church of Ephesus with these words in verse 7. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And so Jesus says, whoever has ears, put your hand up. We've been a, got a, a little bit passive this morning. Put your hand up if you have ears. Yeah. Some, some, yep, two ears at the back there. I see those hands. And so Jesus is saying, yeah, this is written to Ephesus, but whoever has ears, let them hear this. If you have ears this morning, then this word from Jesus is for you. 
Well, I have this habit sometimes of thinking, Whew, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this because they've, they've done the things that Jesus is rebuking. But Jesus has put me here for me to hear this, for me to repent, for me to turn around and for me to do the things that I did at first, for me to, to, to rekindle my first love. If you have ears this morning, hear this word. And then Jesus reminds us of the promise of the hope that awaits for us. He says to those who are victorious, elsewhere in Revelation it says, we overcome, we're victorious by the, the blood of the Lamb, Jesus' sacrifice, and the power of his testimony. So this isn't like, you know, this, I'm, I'm strong, I'm a conqueror, victorious. This is, I'm faithful in Jesus. I trust in his blood. I trust in his good news. And through that I'm victorious. He says to those who are victorious, he'll give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He reminds us who may be tempted to fade in our enthusiasm for Jesus as the things of this world kind of preoccupy us, get in the way of our first love. When that hamburger looks more tasty than a bike ride, when that sleep-in looks more tasty than gathering with the believers to worship the one true God, when that time scrolling on Facebook looks more interesting than than opening the words of him who stands amongst the lampstands and holds the stars in his hand, whose mouth is a double-edged sword, he reminds us that we have a hope beyond all of those distractions. Beyond all of that, Paul would say, garbage, crap. It's more akin to the word that he used than garbage. He reminds us that our hope is to be in the paradise of God, eating from the tree of life, which means forever we'll be there. And so we're going to finish with worship this morning. We're going to finish with praising his name. And I want to encourage you, we've got time. We've actually got uh, like a while before Kids Church finishes. They've asked for 50 minutes, so we need to honour that. We've got time to dwell in this space. To come before Jesus as we sing, you can start to strum enthusiastically, James. We've got time to start coming before Jesus and take a moment for ourselves to repent. It's not my place to judge you. It's not my place to decide where you're at. It's just my place to encourage you that Jesus says, consider how far you've fallen. Stand on the scales. Not for anyone else to see, but just for you to see. And repent. Change direction. Do those things that flow out of your love for Jesus. That manifest his love through you to others. So I'm going to get out of the way. I'm going to take this moment, but first I'm going to pray. Jesus, I... As the pastor, as the leader of this church, I I repent for myself and for each of us. We have forsaken our first love. We have been distracted. We've said that we love you, but when we check ourselves, perhaps our enthusiasm might have faded. And so we want to repent. 
We want to be moved, your spirit to move in us to do those things that we did at first. We want to get back on the bike, Jesus. We want to fall in love with you afresh this morning. And we want to love others just as you have loved us. So Holy Spirit, come now. Lead us in this time. Lead us in this space. Let those of us who have ears hear this word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. As you head back into your week, we want to encourage you to stay in his word, stay in his love, and stay strong in your faith. Don't forget to keep up to date with what's happening via Facebook, Instagram, or via our website at ycbc.church. See you soon.